Don't Fear the Wasteland, an apocalyptic broadcast. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.18 Ginger bullied me into sharing a Bible verse, and that's the shortest one I could find that fit the situation. There, I kept my word. She can't say nothing to me. Now, as for Marge, it took her a week longer than she thought to get to the last hurrah, but that's the apocalypse for you. She arrived bright and early one Sunday morning in midwinter. I'd been keeping track of the date with my iPod, its internal clock letting me count the days of the apocalypse. We'd mostly kept to the traditional resting on Sundays, and as such, I was out front cleaning off Daddy's grave when dust kicked up on the gravel driveway. I hollered for Trip before I recognized the truck. The pibiskis were back, but I couldn't make out the driver because the sun put a glare on the windshield. Trip came out onto the porch with a shotgun. I'd decided to trust him after Eva promised we could stay at the last hurrah forever if we wanted. As the truck parked and I walked over, I saw the driver was a woman in her 40s with bright red hair. In the passenger seat was an older lady, hair mostly gray, and in the bed sat a gaggle of kids, none of them the pibiskis. Arrow came running up then, and the kids shrieked in delight. "'Where'd you get this truck?' I demanded, interrupting Tripp's greeting. "'How'd you get this truck?' Marge, as Tripp had called her, got out of the cab and looked at me. "'Who are you?' she asked. "'This truck isn't yours. How'd you get it?' I was quickly becoming hysterical. "'Well, little missy, I found it outside Meridian. Keys in it, only long gone.' Her words rocked me. What had happened to the Pibiskis? Samma was at my side then, holding me up. What wouldn't the wasteland take from me? Would Samma be next? I made it to my bedroom before my legs gave out. I cried myself to sleep, my head in Samma's lap, and I slept clean through the day. When the episode abated two days later and I crawled from bed, Marge greeted me in the kitchen with fresh coffee and cinnamon twists. So what's your story? I asked. Wiping down the counter, she told me. Marge came to the last hurrah a decade earlier after moving to Birchville when her dad took sick. After he passed, she moved into the last hurrah and cooked three meals every day for the crew with her own small staff. Her mom lived in Nebraska and eventually had to move into a home. When the apocalypse hit, Marge went after her mother against Shelby's advice. Marge wasn't the only one to leave the farm which seemed wild to me given what the last hurrah offered compared to the wasteland. Though, in the early days, many thought the government camps were the answer. Of course, that was before we all realized the government weren't coming back. But according to Marge, after 15 farmhands and Leo's brother went up in flames, people were understandably freaked. When Marge couldn't get in touch with her mom or the retirement home, she became frantic and had to find out if her mom was still alive. Shelby's journal told me that by the end of the year, only her and Leo were still at the farm. Marge's story is rather incredible. She crossed four states in twice as many months, trekking over burnt husks of towns and avoiding cities over Roman crawlers and death. In Missouri, she met the remains of a National Guard group and they helped her into Nebraska before heading farther north to assist other survivors. Marge found the nursing home mostly intact which was surprising, given the state of the rest of the country, which Marge described simply as utterly fucked. Marge's mother, Anita, was alive and thriving, having kept the home in order long after the staff abandoned ship. She'd even taken in a troop of kids who had nowhere else to go after she found them digging through the remains of a convenience store. 
When Marge showed up, Anita refused to leave unless everyone came with her. And everyone meant six kids between the ages of 9 and 14, plus three nursing home patients. All the other elderly had burned, passed, or wandered off in their dementia-addled state. The group made it to the white man base with some trouble and one death by infection. The base could provide limited medical care, so the two nursing home patients left decided to stay. The kids were attached to Mama Anita by that point, and they continued on with her and Marge. It was outside Meridian that Marge found the Papiski's truck, parked nice and neat on the highway. Her group had been walking miles at that point after their van broke down, so a working truck was a blessing. Marge insisted she found no one to claim the truck nearby and definitely hadn't stolen it. I didn't know if I believed her story. Any of it. An old woman, six kids, three patients, and Marge making it across four states seemed implausible. Marge guessed my thoughts from the look on my face. Fine, she said. Don't believe me. Just don't take it out on the kids. I remained silent, drinking coffee instead of talking to the woman who might have killed the Papiskis. Marge was more useful than for just her cooking skills. She had traveled farther than any of the rest of us, and the details she gave told us just how far gone humanity was. Entire cities were ash or overrun by crawlers, their stumbling, four-limbed gait, and jerky movements clearly spied through binoculars. As far as she knew, any armed militia groups were acting without orders, helping others simply because they had the means to do so. Last Marge's group had heard, it'd been at least six months since the final actual broadcast. Frankie sure as hell hadn't heard anything on the setup that wasn't pre-recorded and repeating. Marge's cooking was good, but not enough to make me forgive her for arriving in the Papiski's truck. She took on her old role without question, leaving the rest of us more time to handle other things. It was because of this that I started traveling farther and farther out to paint signs and billboards with directions to our farm. Sometimes, one of the kids would insist on going with Arrow and me. Most common was Chloe, or Aaron, the two eldest of Mama Anita's rescued kids. Chloe I liked. She was sassy and smart and had an opinion on everything. She also liked riding horseback and was adept at it. Aaron, on the other hand, was so shy I couldn't tell if I liked him or not. The most he ever talked to me was asking to tag along. The entire trip was in silence unless I talked aloud, but each of my efforts were met with more silence on his part. Aaron followed my orders, though, without complaint, keeping close and helping paint the signs. His handwriting was even very neat. After a couple of trips with Aaron, I realized he was using our outings to get away from the crowd at the farm. I didn't talk so much after that and let him enjoy the silence. I kept my trips within a half-day's ride from the last hurrah. I didn't want to spend the night in the field. After painting two billboards, a couple walls, and one intersection with directions to our colony, I decided to branch out past Birchville and its outskirts. On the first trip past Birchville, Sam had joined me on her own horse. Arrow scouted ahead, keeping us safe. We took Route 109 to the highway, the farthest I'd been since Daddy and I drove in. The highway had a couple burnout husk of cars, but was otherwise unblocked. We kept to the grassy shoulder and headed towards the next billboard. It sat low to the ground and had a white background. Heaven or hell, it proclaimed, where will you spend eternity? It took an hour of rolling white paint over its message before I could spray my own words in red. Above an arrow pointing at the Route 109 overpass, I scrawled, 15 miles to the last hurrah. Survivors welcome. 
It's more like 20 miles, isn't it? Samus said to me when I finished. Dunno, the horse doesn't have an odometer. She punched my arm gently and I stole a kiss. Besides, I told her, there's three more signs between here and there. They'll find us. We rode further down the highway until the shoulder became a field and there we let the horses graze while we sat together on a blanket and watched the clouds roll by. Arrow chased bugs in the field for a while and then laid down to nap beside us. Out here, alone with Sama, I realized I was really happy. So much so that I could forget the world burn and ignore the constant smell of char. We were simply together, pointing out shapes in the sky, although I couldn't see as much as she could. My imagination had always been limited. We watched the day pass and ate a picnic lunch Marge had insisted on making us. In the late afternoon, we packed up and climbed back into our saddles. As we got back on the highway, Samma brought her horse up short, looking far down the pavement. I didn't notice she wasn't beside me for a time. As I turned around to look for her, I saw them. A hundred yards away, a small group of dirty humans wandered down the highway. Their clothing was all white, or at least it used to be. There were long streaks of ash on the fabric and other wasteland dirt. I almost mistook them for crawlers, except for one person in the back held high a banner of more filthy fabric with three teardrops painted on it. I haven't seen that many people together since before. Sam trailed off, but I knew she meant before the world ended. Do we wait on them to reach us? She asked me. They don't look armed, I replied, checking for the pistol at my belt. They look like a colt, Sam told me. I think it'd be better to head them off here than let them follow the signs to the farm, I said. Samma shrugged, deferring to me. Arrow looked to me and Samma for direction, and I told him to stay. The group approached, giving no sign that they'd seen us yet. Long minutes ticked by as they trudged forward. Screw it, I decided. Let's go meet them. That's the day I learned that Corinthians existed. A strange group of nomads. And you've likely ran into them before. But if you haven't, I only have one word for you. Run. They're bloodsuckers. Ration leeches and all-around useless Bible thumpers. Even Ginger thinks so, and she used to be one. Time wasters, the lot of them. Corinthians, or fools of Christ as I like to call them, hide under a mask of Karen, a stout belief that the burning was actually the rapture and that everyone left behind must atone for their sins. They're a wild time if you have nothing better to do. Of course, I didn't know this yet. We rode out to them, and they saw us pretty quickly on horseback above the wrecked and ruined cars. The lady in front held up a hand, and the small procession stopped. An unfelt breeze ruffled their teardrop banner in dirty white clothes. Arrow moved forward past me to sniff them out, and a couple bent over to pet him, so he was instantly happy. Sam stayed in the saddle as I dismounted and stepped forward. Who are you? I asked them, blunt. The woman in front told us she was Sister Grace and that her group were simply wanderers living as Jesus did off the kindness of others. Still blunt, I asked if it was a cult. Her mouth turned down for a brief moment before she trained it back into a smile and shook her head. Of course not. We're a religious sect intent on spreading the word of God in this time of tribulation. I spotted their con pretty quick, a sermon in exchange for rations. I asked if they were armed, and Sister Grace shook her head. God protects us, she said. They were brave, I'd give them that. I took a chance and told them of the last rock. 
they'd have seen the billboard in another 50 feet anyway. You're welcome if you can work a little. We have enough to share, and if you've been traveling the waste, you'll have stories. Sister Grace nodded. We can trade. God has led us to you. The group sang most of the way back, old hymns, some of which I recognized from my short stint as a Catholic. One of the men in the group had an amazing voice, deep and rich. He led most of the singing, his voice weaving between everyone. Sam had surprised me by joining in for a couple of songs. We rode slowly beside the group, so slowly that I knew we wouldn't reach the last hurrah before dark. After an hour, I decided to trot ahead and send Trip back with the truck. They seemed unbothered by the distance, but Sister Grace agreed to my idea. It took a couple hours to get back and to convince Trip to go pick up strangers, but in the end he agreed, though I had to go with him and take extra firepower. We found them on the far edge of Birchville, and I still don't know how they made it so far so quick. Magic, maybe. The group piled into the pickup bed, all nine of them. It was a tight fit, but they made do. As Trip took off back to the farm, the Corinthians, a name I'd learned later, held hands and sang. Safe in the cab, Trip looked over at me and shook his head. If they kill us in our sleep, he muttered. They're Jesus freaks. Murdering isn't allowed, I scoffed. Religion is a fickle thing. People tend to change scripture to suit their needs, Tripp told me. He wasn't wrong. If Sister Grace decided God wanted the farm for his cult, who knew what would happen? I caught Sister Grace looking carefully at Birchville as we passed through it in the side mirror of the truck. It was a strange look on her wizened face, almost calculating. I was glad we'd made a few huge supply runs in the last month, taking and stockpiling as much of the farm as we could. Less for bandits to take, or a religious cult. We bumped up the last hurrah drive and tripped parked near the porch. Sama came out to meet us. The Corinthians clambered down, one helping Sister Grace out of the truck bed. She took in the farm and there was a strange glint to her eyes. I hope we hadn't made a mistake. Let us pray, Sister Grey announced, reaching out with her hands. Her group moved into a circle. Lord, our God, you have brought us from the desert to an oasis in man. Make us worthy and bless our gracious host for all they share with us. Amen. They weren't done. Voices raised in song, and I rolled my eyes before heading inside to warn Marge of the nine new mouths to feed. They lasted a week before we made them leave. Sister Grace's sermons on the porch, morning, noon, and night, grated on my nerves. They blamed the apocalypse on man's sin and just generally annoyed the hell out of me. But I'll get more into that next time. Frankie says time is up for today. I'm Sheriff, and I'm talking to you from the last hurrah, west of Montgomery, Alabama. You're welcome here. Together we can survive. Just remember, no funny business. Don't Fear the Wasteland is a story-driven podcast by Joey Hall, chronicling Sheriff's journey in the apocalypse and broadcast as a radio show from the last hurrah in Alabama. It's an oasis for survivors in the blasted remains of the old world, or Earth as we know it now. To learn more about the wasteland where Sheriff spends her days, check out don'tfearthewasteland.com and joeyhall.com. Thanks for listening.